Well, we're back in the Gospel of Mark this morning. The Gospel of Mark is where we are. And if you remember, it's kind of like a newspaper account of the Bible, of the, of the of life of Christ. It's the first, actually, we think it's probably the first of the Gospels that was written. It's also the shortest of the Gospels that was written. And um, it's called a, a newspaper version of it because it moves so fast. It moves so fast. And, and his favorite word is immediately, immediately. You'll see that throughout the Gospel of Mark as he, as he talks about things. He jumps over a lot of things. He doesn't talk about the Christmas story at all. He just jumps totally over that because he's moving quickly. And so we're back to immediately here in the Gospel of Mark this morning. So in June, I think it was June the last time I preached, we were in Mark chapter 6, the beginning of it. Just to, I want you to review just a little bit of that because it's germane to where we are this morning. So in Mark chapter 6, we started off there with uh, Jesus was in Nazareth for the last time, his hometown, his disciples were with him, and they rejected him in Nazareth. So that was his last time to be in Nazareth, if you remember, in verses 1 and following. And uh, so he had his 12 with him, so he, he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two as he shook the dust off the feet of his shoes as he left Nazareth for the last time. And so his disciples now are going to go out. They, it's two years into Jesus' ministry now. One more year is remaining. And uh, if you recall... Um, he sent them out two by two to go do ministry. He calls them apostles now for the first time there and gave them authority over unclean spirits, it tells us in, in verse 7. And they went out and they preached that men should repent. And then the next major story, which is really important to where we are today, is verse 14 through 29, talking about John the Baptist and Herod and all of that and John the Baptist uh, lost his head in that particular story. And so the disciples, some of the disciples knew about that. Some of them had actually been to, to retrieve his headless body and bring it for burial someplace. And it was a very discouraging moment as they came back. Those, some of those disciples now, some of the apostles, it seemed like they may have been connected directly with that. They came back and they are now with Jesus back in northern Galilee in Capernaum, which was kind of his headquarters where Peter lived and all of that. And so um, they're discouraged. I, I would say they probably would. The whole thing with John the Baptist was pretty discouraging. He was rejected. Jesus was rejected in Nazareth too. And they went out to preach. And they always came back now to kind of, kind of reprogram with Jesus and kind of tell what they'd done and what had happened. And Jesus would then mentor them to be apostles uh, more so in, in followers because now Jesus was not going to be doing all the ministry, but they were. They were going to be doing the ministry I didn't understand all of that yet. They were very confused about a lot of things. So let's read the text of the feeding of the 15,000 this morning. You, you might know it as the 5,000, but I'll explain that later. Starting in verse, actually about verse 30, it talks about that they, they were gathering and reported to him all that they had seen and done. And, um, and then Jesus said, let's go to a secluded uh, place there because there are lots of people surrounding them. We'll start in verse 31 now. The people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities. This is northern Galilee now. 
And they got there ahead of them, and Jesus went ashore. And he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Verse 35, when it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and it's already quite late. Send them away so that they may, find, they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread? Give them something to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. And they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and he looked up toward heaven. And he blessed the food and broke the loaves and kept them and kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And they, he divided up the two fish among them all. And they all ate were satisfied. And they picked up the twelve full baskets of the broken pieces and also the fish. And there were five thousand men who ate. This is a very interesting story. This is a miracle that is different than all the other miracles you find in the New Testament. It's the only miracle that occurs in all New Testament books of the, um, of the apostles, the, 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 um, the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, along with the resurrection. So the resurrection story and the feeding of the 5,000 here, as you would call it, are the only two miracles that are encouraged in all, and repeated in all four of those books there. And not only that, it's, it's massive. There's thousands of people there, more than 5,000. We'll talk about that later. And um, because actually Matthew says there were also women and children. He adds that little detail. So we know if the, if the husbands were there, their wives were there, and probably a bunch of kids were there. Some people think there may have been 10,000 or 15,000 or even 25,000, some have said. It was a massive miracle. And both saved people and unsaved people were there and heard the miracle and participated in it as they ate the fish and the bread. It's also the last significant miracle that Jesus does as he more or less now departs from Galilee in the north, Capernaum and all that. And you could say it's really the last significant miracle that he really does because now the disciples are doing more of the ministry and he's spending more time with them and, uh, and kind of coaching them and they're doing more of the work. So this is a turning point. It's like one year now left in Jesus' life. And they're really, they're really locking in and taking over now. So we come to this story today, and as we do, we just want to think about this story. And uh, as we look at it, we're going to pray as we go into it and begin to explain it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the uh, story of these people who were participating in this miracle. It's a, really an unusual one. 
We do pray for your grace upon the, the words I say and the understanding of this to be able to apply it to us in our lives today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I said, I may have to sit down having a, a leg that sometimes is just a little bit irritated means maybe shorter sermons. Or maybe not, I don't know if I sit down, we'll see. So anyway, we start out, it kind of comes in four different, four different kind of like stages, this little story. So I start out with the desolate retreat place that they went to in verse 31 and verse 32. And he said to come away and want to go to this desolate place. And that's a pretty desolate place in northern, northeastern part of the Sea of Galilee. Been there just briefly. And um, a lot of people were coming. They wanted to get away because the disciples were pretty well worn out from everything that had happened. So Jesus takes them to this place. Uh, but a lot of people come there too. And they went by boat. So it says, um, it says that the twelve had returned and that they all had done and taught were told that to Jesus. And this was so, supposed to be kind of a leisure, a leisure retreat, if you will. I like that term. <laughs> it's in a place called Beth, Bethsaida. Bethsaida is one of two key cities that are cursed in the area there because of rejection. But this city was evidently a small city, just uh, the northeast side of the top of the Sea of Galilee. And it was kind of hard to identify today. I understand that there are hardly any remains there, so there's not absolute certainty exactly where it was, but that's where they went in this case. And Jesus wants to encourage the 12 while he is there. He wants to get some time with them. And um, they came to him to do that. And I often think of the fact that when I am discouraged, what do I do? And when you are discouraged, what do you do? Well, we do all kinds of things. We wash our cars, we get depressed, we complain, we sleep, we take medicine to make us sleep better. We argue with our spouses. I don't do that, but anyway, um, um, we, we dig holes in the backyard and do things. We try to get away from it, but they did the right thing. They went to Jesus. They went to Jesus. And I just think of that. That is just a, a simple thing there. Go to Jesus when you're discouraged. And they did. And now he encourages them. So if you're discouraged this morning, go to Jesus. Call upon him. I don't know how he will answer you, but he will. He will deal with you somehow. He certainly didn't deal with them in the way they kind of, kind of thought that he would. So in verse 33 and verse 34, we come to the second movement in this story, the massive multitude. Verse 33, keep in mind they're, they're on this boat, they go across this area. Probably doesn't take too terribly long, a few hours if, this, if the wind is right. Says, when he went ashore, excuse me, now many saw them going. People saw them going and recognized him, and they ran there. They saw them when they left Capernaum, and so they followed them over there. They ran there on foot from the towns. Towns is in the plural, the cities, polis, in the plural there. And there actually are over 200 little villages in northern Galilee. And so there were small villages, lots of people were coming. We already saw how many people were coming when we were back in this series before uh, the summer started. But people were coming from everywhere, and the crowds were getting bigger and bigger. And this is the biggest crowd that they would see. This is the, the kingpin of all of that. And the people actually got there ahead of them. They ran, it says there. 
they were running along the, probably the seashore. They could see the boat out there. It wasn't very far out. And they recognized him. In verse 34, it says that Jesus went ashore and he had compassion on them. I'm going to camp on that for a moment as the, he was with the massive multiply, multitudes. He had compassion on them. Compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Word compassion is a very interesting word. Kind of a strange sounding word. The word splog sounds kind of weird, but it's, it's actually from the idea of your bowels getting nervous and speaking up and your insides kind of being in a, in a turmoil and feeling deeply emotionally something inside. So you can kind of see the connection there. It's kind of like the word we often say, I feel your pain. I feel your pain. And he felt their pain as he saw them coming. And why did he do that? He felt their pain because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He understood. By the way, feeling pain is a good thing. I felt a fair amount of pain this past summer. And... Uh, it's all, I have this pinched nerve in the back that went down my leg. I haven't had, had a surgery. Praise the Lord. The surgeon said, you don't need surgery. Just keep going with the physical therapy. And it's working. It is. And gradually getting better. But now when I see somebody that's limping or in a wheelchair, I, I feel their pain. I do. I saw my son send me from Ukraine, where he works as a missionary, a picture of him deadlifting a big barbell. 400 pounds. Deadlift means you pick it up and you do it like this, you put it down. That's hard on your back, I said to Caleb. Caleb, that's hard on your back. He said, well, I'm wearing a big belt. It's not a big enough belt for me, you know. <laughs> I said, be careful because what you do now, you'll pay for later. And that's kind of where I am, you know. I didn't did deadlift 400 pounds, but I did deadlift a lot of wheat sacks and big chunks of, uh, <laughs> of uh, trees when I was cutting firewood. But Jesus felt their pain. And so he began to teach them. Because he saw them like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. Reminds us of Ezekiel 34, where we talk, where in the Old Testament there, talks about the sheep that are sort of lost. And Israel was like sheep without a shepherd, that kind of idea. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among the scattered sheep, so will I care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day, the Old Testament says. Talking about Israel. But Jesus is a shepherd of the sheep. In fact, I wrote, an, wrote a brief email to all my elders this morning and said, we're the under-shepherds. And our responsibility is to care for the sheep that God has given us and care for them. And it's something that we need to take very, very seriously. So, sheep without a shepherd, Guzik says this, and I like it. He kind of bases it on uh, 23rd Psalm background. He said, sheep with a sh with a, without a shepherd are really needy because they have no shepherd to fill their wants. That's obvious. That's the way these people were. Sheep without a shepherd are, are hungry and they're thirsty because they have no shepherd to make them lie down in green pastures. And sheep without a shepherd hurt because they have no shepherd to restore the soul. 
and they wander. Sheep without a shepherd tend to wander because they have no shepherd to lead them in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And sheep without a shepherd are vulnerable because they have no shepherd to protect them with rod and the staff that comfort them. So we need to think about that just a little bit in this picture. Here's all these thousands of people. Like I say, I'm guessing 15,000. Maybe it was 20, maybe it was 25. Maybe it was not much more than 5,000, but it had to be a fair amount at least. He began to teach them many things, it says in the text here. And when you look at it, you always have to look at all four streams of the text in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. And they're easy enough to find because usually your Bibles will tell you where it's found in the other Gospels. And so I was reading all four streams of that. But Mark's is actually the longest one. It has the most detail. Even though Mark is the shortest book of the New Testament, it's got the most detail about this miracle which is saying something to it, because Mark seems to have some personal understanding that Mark was actually John Mark, who was rejected by the Apostle Paul on one of the missionary trips, but came back and did a good job later, and now we have him as the author of what seems to be the first gospel there, probably informed a little bit by Peter also. So Jesus began to teach them. He taught them because they were confused. He taught them because the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious system of, of Israel was corrupt and it had moved far away from what even the Old Testament originally meant. I think he taught them what was the right perspective on that, who the Father really was and who he was. And he would prove that in the miracle. He taught good things. He taught them about sin. He taught them about the kingdom of heaven, the coming kingdom. He taught them, like I said, about Sin and, um, and the fact that they were sinners, like we all have to under, come to understand we're all sinners and lost, and, and we really saw that very clearly in Graham's class this morning. By the way, thank you, Graham, on that. That was good. And, um, and yet it's so important. I, I, I think it, teaching is one of the main things that pastor shepherds do. Sproul says that. He says 95% of the shepherd's work is preaching and teaching. Very important work. Many churches in America where you can't find a good preaching, you can find a lot of interesting stories, you can find lots of stories that are fun stories, you can find advertising, you can find entertainment, you can find all kinds of things. In fact, I drove by a church a couple of days ago in Tacoma, and the sign out front uh, said, um, Blessing service for the animals this Sunday. Bring your pets. I think was the idea. And I'd heard about that before. I, I was kind of surprised to see it myself. I love my cat, but I don't love my cat that much. <laughs> he does not, he's not made in the image of God. He is a cat. And he bites me sometimes. <laughs> but I just want to say that it's important to teach the word. That's why we teach expositionally the scripture here, because that's where it is. And the, uh, the people of Israel in the time from the Pharisees and the Sadducees had lost track of that too. And that's why there were so many problems. That's why Jesus came to correct them. So, uh, and then he taught them about the simplicity of the gospel. And you need to know how to share the gospel. Look at my blog from um, last week. And it 
four-fingered way to do that. It's good. The third movement in this particular story now starts in verse 35 through 38 here. And um, Jesus had been with a crowd all day now. They pretty much had been there all day. I, you assume they went there in the morning and um, then found the crowd and um, had to spend time with them. So verse 35 talks about their practical proposal, first of all. Their practical proposal there, starting in verse 35. It says, when it grew late, the day was at the end of the day now, the disciples came to him, that would be the apostles, sometimes they're called disciples yet, and said, this is a desolate place. By the way, that part really is desolate there. In the summertime, or in the springtime, it, it's kind of green and nice, but it was desolate in the sense that it was far from a lot of the other places. It's near where the place where Jesus found the demoniac, remember, who was cutting himself, and the demons were there, and the pigs got jumped into the water and committed suicide, and... Uh, all of that, and this is that same kind of area there. And Jesus said that the, the place and the hour is now late, this desert, desolate place. So send them away and go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy something for them to eat. So the 12 saw the problem. The 12 saw the problem, and they were saying, let them go on their own and figure out something to eat, you know. That's kind of what they were saying there. And they didn't, they could see the people were getting hungry, and I think actually that the 12 were getting hungry too. I mean, I get hungry sometimes, and I like to have food right away. I just ate a handful of nuts before I came up here because I didn't have a lot of breakfast. But. So they, they decided, how on earth are we going to feed all these people? They were see far as you could see probably people there so um, they said Jesus just just send them away and let them deal with it. it's their problem it's their problem then go to a village somewhere here and find food how could you find enough food in those little villages for that many people if that was if that was about how many were and I, I think that they forgot that they were apostles here I think that they forgot of the power that Jesus had given them and um, they had forgotten the promises that Jesus had made to them and that they had done miracles actually prior to this. And after they left Nazareth and were out and about, they had done lots of things. But, but they were kind of discouraged because of John the Baptist thing. So Jesus is there to encourage them and they had forgotten even their, the root of their ministry in a way. Forgotten they were apostles. They had apostolic authority. The word apostle means one who is sent to teach, for example. And um, their authority extended to doing miracles. Sometimes it just refers in a general sense to just someone who's sent with a message. But in the cases in the New Testament, the context would indicate they had special authority that only the twelve had to do these kinds of miracles. They didn't do all the kinds of miracles that Jesus did, but they did a lot of them. Later on, we will see that. And of course, they all did eventually die. But they had authority. But they didn't think about any kind of miracle in association with feeding these people so many. So then it comes down to verse 37, and this is Christ's surprising 
test command. I would call it a test command to them in verse 37 and verse 38. Verse 37, he, that's Jesus, answered them, um, you give them something to eat. He gives a kind of a, a command here, a command. And they said to him, I think that was Philip that was speaking in this case, they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Now, 200 denarii, denarii, was, denarii is probably about a day's wages. And they may have had that much money with them. There was one, of course, we know Judas who had the money bags. And... Um, Buying that much bread would have been not enough for that big of a group. It wouldn't have been anywhere near enough. But it was an idea if they had that much. So that was, was their idea. But Christ's surprising command says, you give them something to eat. What does that mean? It was, it was to test them. John 6, 6 says this was to test them. What are they going to say now? What are they going to do now? He was testing them, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. What do you think their response was? Pray? No, they didn't pray. They didn't pray. They just kind of said, uh, what are we going to do, you know? What do we think here? Verse 38 says, And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. Well, they probably didn't have any loaves. That's my guess. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said that. They probably already ate them for lunch or something like that. And so they went out and they found out how many loaves they had. And actually, one of the other Gospels says that Luke 6, um, Andrew talks about it, said they found a lad and he had the, the fish and the bread. He had the the food there, you know, a little bit. The five fish and the, excuse me, the five pieces of bread and the two fish. So they took it away from the little boy. The little kid probably looking at him, what's going on here? I don't know how that happened, but they brought that back. They brought that back now. Five and two fishes. Five loaves and two fishes. Very small amount. Fish are generally small there. If you go to Galilee, they'll take you to a place where you can eat some of the fish if it was similar to the fish that are only unique there in Galilee. And the bread, by the way, is not like Wonder Bread. It's not like um, um, Dave's Killer Bread you can buy in the store. It's not like uh, French bread. It's not like these big loaves that are almost like a cake. It's a little, small, tiny thing, almost like an overgrown cracker. That's what that is referring to here in the language. Really small. <clears throat> so that's what, that's what they had. Five loaves and two little tiny fish. Two little tiny fish, wow. So uh, it's a drop in the bucket. We looked out all over that crowd. How could they possibly do anything with that? comes to the fifth, excuse me, the fourth um, movement of the story now. The miracle of the multiplication in verse 39 through 44. Let's look at that. 
So Jesus commanded them all to sit down. I find, I find this very interesting. He gives, he gives the orders now because they're there to learn from him and he gives a command that there's no question about it. Just sit down <laughs> in groups on the green grass, which tells us it's probably springtime there because there is green grass in the springtime. It's an important point to notice there. I don't believe the other Gospels mention that. And then in verse 40, uh, they sat down in groups of hundreds and by fifties. Hundreds and by fifties. So there was like groups here. We know they were all men because it does say that in verse 44, in this case. In this big kind of cluster where it was nice and orderly, hundreds, and then there were smaller groups of, of fifties. And so it was like there were aisles, you know, like aisles we have down the front of the church and maybe down the back and the front and the back and the side. And in other words, Jesus was preparing them to be the waiters and they didn't know that so they could access these people. The others, we don't know exactly if they were mixed or that it was all together, but certainly we know they counted by men. And the reason that they counted by men is this. They counted by men because if you count by men, you can guarantee there's going to be kids and, and wives behind it. So it's easier to count 5,000 men than 20,000 people, right? That's a no-brainer. So they could count 5,000 men. Well, then we can pretty much guess that there were probably 15,000, 20,000 people. It's just a rule of thumb there. So that's, that's kind of what they... They did there, and, uh, <clears throat> and that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Let's just say, conservatively, there were 20, 15 or 20,000 people. I did a few calculations about this and thinking just about that. If they were in groups of 50 and there were 15,000 people, how many groups would that be? There's about, there's about 150 people here today, so if you have 50, 50, 50, how many groups would that be? Your mathematicians, that works out to 3,000 groups. 1,000 groups for each of those three sections of 5,000 each. There's a lot of people. Uh, we, we once fed 4,000 people here at the church over two nights for a living nativity. I often think of that. We said, that was a feeding of the 4,000, which is a smaller group. It's mentioned later on. It's another event. But we didn't feed them fish and bread. We fed them cookies and cakes. And I remember the ladies were coming down from the kitchen and there were people milling about in here as they were walking out there because we had several thousand coming to the nativity. And those two nights we had 4,000 people come and they ate food. And the ladies brought a tray down like every minute, minute and a half, wasn't it, Sharon, something like that. They were just shoveling it out of the kitchen in there like crazy and people were gobbling it up. But this is far more than that. Far more than that. The massiveness is something you cannot miss in this miracle because it's unique to this miracle. Most of the other miracles are much smaller. So it tells us that in verse 41 that the Taking the five loaves and the two fishes, Jesus then prayed. He looked up. It's, I like that. He looked up towards heaven. And it says that he blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set them before the people. And he divided the two fishes among them. 
The concept of blessing food is a little confusing sometimes. Basically, this has the idea of that he gave thanks for the food. He gave thanks for it. Now, now just think about that a moment. He gave thanks for food that he just would create. That's an interesting concept there. And if they were creating this much food, that's a lot of people. Just to give you an idea how many people, 15,000 people is. Uh, my son works for the cruise ship companies and he got me a, got us a, a tour of one of the Holland Line cruise ships a couple months ago and we went and toured this boat and it holds about 6,000 people. So that would be, what, three cruise ships full of people. That's including the crew and the engineers and all the guests and all the waiters and everybody. That's a lot of people. I can relate to that point. That's lots of people that were there. Even if it was a smaller group, it's still a lot of people. So they ate this stuff. He divided it up. He prayed over it and gave thanks for it. And then they ate the stuff. And it says, and they all ate. In other words, Nobody complained. I don't like fish, especially raw fish. And I don't like these crackers. They all ate it. And they were thankful. They were probably good and hungry. It says, and they were satisfied. It didn't give them any kind of stomach aches there in the midst of all that. Amazing. He created this food as, as it came out. I'd like to think of that like he created the universe, like he created the world. Ex nihilo in the book of Genesis, we think of it that way. Out of nothing. Out of nothing there. And then afterwards it says they, they took up 12 baskets. By the way, the baskets were small, not quite like you normally would think of them, a big round thing. It's actually a little bit something with a little bit of a fluted top on it and... So you couldn't always see what was in it. And that's probably how it was delivered to the people and how it came back, what was left over. So they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces, in other words, the leftovers, and of the fish, leftovers also, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. 5,000 men. Now, once again, just to prove my point that there were more there, look at the other Gospels, and one of them will certainly mention there were also women and children. So men was a way of counting large groups because it was just easier to count the men. They stood taller, easier to see, and probably clustered together. Amazing here. So in thinking of all of this, I just wanted to take a few moments this morning um, and bring some application to this some lessons from this amazing story. Once again, it's the only miracle that's mentioned in all four Gospels, except for the resurrection, which is mentioned in all four Gospels. All the other miracles are, are not in all four. They're in various ones, but not all four. So this one is very significant for some reason. A couple of ideas that come out of this um, as we think about the lessons that come from all of this. First of all, it was a lesson in humble, kingly contrast. I want you to think about that one for a moment. Humble, kingly contrast. And that's why it's always important to keep a text in context. And the context was John the Baptist's death. 
and the feast that Herod had. So let's take a moment and compare the feast Herod had, which the disciples were all very familiar with, and the feast that Jesus had here. It was a lesson in humble kingly contrast. Herod's banquet was put on by a murderer of many children and John the Baptist himself, while Jesus was the perfect son of God and creator of all life. That's a pretty big distinction, isn't it? And uh, Herod was an earthly king and Jesus was a spiritual king. So it makes a distinction there too. There's another, there's another contrast there too. Herod's guests were, were a select group of important people and military officers and so forth, the rich and the powerful and the elite of Galilee, it says, while Jesus was one of the commoners. The people were the commoners who were the sick and the lame and the lost who came. Totally different crowd there. But it wasn't an elite group. It was everybody is welcome in Jesus' case. Everyone was welcome. Another contrast there, Herod's, Herod's entertainment was lustful dancing that would appeal to Herod. But at Jesus' feast, it was really the teaching of God's word that was key there for the people in the beginning. And then it says many things they were taught there that would help them come to a knowledge of salvation and eternal life if they paid attention to it. So it's quite different in the terms of the entertainment from lustful dancing to teaching of the word. Number four, also Herod's guests uh, were gourmet. Were, their food was prepared by gourmet chefs and, and it was the best kind of stuff that you could probably, probably find where Herod was there. It was very fancy, fancy food. But Jesus provided the simple food of people, just a couple of fish and some little crackers there and uh, that he had created by the Messiah himself, not by special chefs, but by Jesus himself. What a contrast. Herod's feast, nobody gave thanks. Jesus' feast, he himself, the master, blessed the food himself, prayed there. And uh, sixthly, in Herod's feast, it was climaxed. The climax of the whole thing was the execution of John the Baptist, the gory, terrible, dastardly thing that happened. In Jesus' feast, it was featured compassion for the lost sheep, the healing of the sick and the lame. He healed a lot of people at that feast, by the way. He mentions it also. And the offer of eternal life and all of that. Quite a different situation, quite a bit of contrast. And then lastly, sixthly, Herod's feast climaxed with the execution of John the Baptist and Jesus featured compassion. I mentioned that already, yeah, so that's the same thing. So it was really a big difference, a big difference between the two, big difference. And I was just thinking about that. How is our dinner table? Is it like Herod's in some ways or is it like Jesus? in some ways. What is your dinner table like? What does it reflect? You can think about that a little bit in your salt groups. That's a good question to consider. And um, what kind of king are you looking for? Are you looking for somebody like Herod to be leader of a country, of a world, 
and um, have military power as he did, can execute people, or are you looking for the spiritual king? I understand that there is a place for earthly kings. The Bible even says that. Pray for those who are in authority. It says to do that. But the ultimate king is coming, isn't he? Amen? Amen. Amen. What kind of king are you looking for? One like Herod or one like Christ? A second lesson. A second lesson I see here too is a lesson in trusting God for provision. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? That's a pretty obvious lesson that is there. Little is much when God is in it is kind of the idea there. Um, it foreshadows a lot of things. In the Old Testament, there's a story of Elisha in 2 Kings that sort of foreshadows this same idea here. We won't go into that, but it is there. But um, it was really a lesson in trusting God for his provision. And so the 12 extra baskets were gathered up. And that's a really an astounding thing, too, that out of all those people, there was only 12 baskets, and it just happened to be 12 baskets because there are 12 disciples. And guess who gathered the baskets? The disciples. It's likely they were the ones who gathered the baskets also. And so as they gathered it up, I can just imagine those guys are grabbing this basket and that basket, and they looked, oh, there's food in there. I haven't had my dinner yet, you know. It looks like just enough for me. Each one of them was grabbing that basket and, and seeing that kind of food that was in there, you know, and, and thinking to themselves, wow, there's food for me in there. There's food for me in there. It must have, it must have really hit them and probably hit them just a little bit between the eyes, I think, too, because if they thought about, just let the people go and find food for themselves in the villages somewhere around here to now Jesus praying and Suddenly the food is all there, and it's good food, too. It's really good food. They were all satisfied. All satisfied. Amazing there, amazing. So every time Jesus put his hand in the basket to hand something out to the guys, it was just instantly there. By the way, some modern liberal scholars will try to explain it away. They try to say that... Um, the disciples or Jesus had people hide food in the caves nearby and then they brought it out when this event happened and so it kind of is one answer to it. Another is that the people all had little baskets and that was where the food came, came from. It's a, it's a human kind of response to it. Not too different from what the disciples were thinking. Just go and let them find it on their own. But this was obviously a miracle that cannot be denied. All four Gospels, keep in mind, mention it. All four Gospels talk about it. But it was a lesson in trusting God for provision, and the disciples didn't trust him. They had the authority as apostles to do something, but they didn't. They kind of, they kind of dropped the ball there. And they just worried about it. And so often we fret about the future, don't we, and how to do something, and, and God's got an answer right there. We must trust him. We can't trust him, though, because we're thinking about ourselves. We're self-focused in all that we do. We don't pray. We don't read our Bibles. And so should it, be, should it be unusual that we don't know what to do? Now, I don't know how many of you read Bibles and don't, but let me encourage you to do that. But I know we probably never totally read enough and pray enough. We only need to give him what we have. And little as much, as you could see here. What they had was 
the fish and the bread. It was a little boy's lunch, and he must have been astounded. Can you imagine that little boy <laughs> seeing all that food? And they brought him food, too, because he was there. And he probably was wondering, what on earth is going on here? We need to trust God in the small things of life and the big things of life. And I, I hesitate to give this illustration, but it always comes up in my mind as I think about it. When I was going to seminary, keep in mind I, I left a Coast Guard officer's career, which I really loved and, um, and felt God had very distinctly put me in there for a while until about seven years came up, and then it was obviously God was leading me towards ministry. So... It was a good pay, it was good salaries, good retirement, respect, all those kinds of things in the U.S. Coast Guard. But I was going to seminary, college, finish up. And I did that. But I remember when we moved here back in 1977. Um, that was the last century. And uh, <laughs> there was a time when we didn't have enough food. We had $67 left and we had eight kids. And um, they were hungry. They were hungry. But I, I didn't know what to do. We talked about it. I, I don't think the people of the church knew because we didn't tell them unless they came looking or asked or something. Sometimes they did, but not in this case. So I had a piece of property in eastern Washington that my father gave to me, which was a, a, a small farm unit that uh, was irrigated and uh, it was producing a little bit of income from farmers there. And I said, we've got to put it up for sale because we only have 67 bucks and that's not going to hardly last till the weekend. And we put it up for sale and lo and behold, by the way, those are not easy to sell because they're very select as who would buy something like that. It has to be nearby to farm it. And, uh, but we got a call from the neighbor next door to the farm and said, I'll buy it. I'll buy it. Oh, that'd be good. Okay, no question. We didn't have to dicker on it. He paid the price, and um, he didn't have all the money, so we had a contract for 20 years. For 20 years, we had an income from that to get us through seminary and the early years of ministry in the church. Little as much when God is in it. Little as much. So it was a lesson in trusting God for provision, very clearly. But you might be needing some provision right now. I don't know where, you're, where you are, what you're trusting God for or, or need. Let me just encourage you to trust Him because He will provide a way and it'll be okay. Third lesson, third lesson was a lesson in servanthood. This is a smaller lesson, but it's nevertheless important because the 12 now were servants as they handed out the food and as they picked up the remainders in the baskets and, and brought it back. And that was their lunch. That was their lunch. So now they were, they were eating it themselves. Would you call that eating crow? No, I don't think you should call it that. But now they're eating the stuff that they, they didn't know where it would come from. And they had the leftovers, probably more than enough. So uh, they learned to be servants because that's what they were to be in the first place. They learned to be the one that would go pick up the stuff, that would hand it out, that would do the chores and so forth. They would follow Jesus in that sense of servanthood. How are you doing as a servant? How are you doing? 
We had the thing about servanthood in the church recently. Chris spoke about it last week. We have the little folder out there. We asked people to put it on the, uh, on the uh, community. If you want to serve the Lord, what areas you want to serve, become a member of the community, and then you can just put it in a very nifty way because it's all unified and easy to find by, um, by just typing, and we need somebody to mow lawns, and it'll list everybody that wants to mow lawns and so forth. Servanthood. Need somebody to visit the sick and the lame. Servanthood. Those are the kinds of things that they would be doing there. And then there's a final lesson here. It was the final lesson, really, to Galilee. I want to be careful about saying to Galilee because it's really to us also. So personalize it. It was the final lesson to Galilee about who Christ really was. He had been there for two years. He had done lots of miracles. His ministry had grown and exploded to this point where we have the massive, biggest miracle that we will see from Jesus. And uh, now, Galilean people were there. 5, 10, 15, 20, 25,000 watching this whole thing. Amazed by this whole thing. Amazed. And, and it's, I think John MacArthur said, this is the biggest display of common grace among unbelievers that we see probably in the New Testament here. Common grace, what that refers to is God, by His grace, will give us, of course, you know, if we repent and turn to Him, seek Him for forgiveness, He gives us salvation. We talked about that in class this morning. And he gives us his righteousness, Jesus does. That's saving grace. But common grace is the other side of the coin, which common grace means that, that the Lord gives certain things to everybody. We've got sunshine today. It's on all those who are saved and unsaved. We've got rain tomorrow, and God's common grace is on all those saved and unsaved. We have... Um, Families, we have our families, our wives, our children. God blesses in those ways, even for the unsaved. Uh, and financially, God does that too. He allows that. So there's common grace in which God gives some things to everybody. It doesn't mean that they have saving grace until they come to repentance by faith alone in Christ alone. Where are you in that? But certainly, the final lesson here was to Galilee. As they looked on at Jesus, there were thousands of unsaved people in that group. Um, tens of thousands of them there. And it was Galilee. It was the north. It was where Jesus was from. And, and they heard all of that. And they heard it many times with all the many miracles that Jesus did. And this wasn't the only one, but there were lots of them. We don't even know how many there were. But, but in this final lesson, it would be the, the biggest lesson that Jesus would give them outside of the resurrection, which would be down in Judea. They would have this lesson to remind them to put their faith in Christ, would they not? And Bethsaida was the place where they were nearest to. And Bethsaida had the, the, the opportunity, but we know later on that that place was to be destroyed, and we can't find it today. Because people rejected him. Nevertheless. It's kind of interesting because 
the people all went back home when the, when the thing was over there and after they had eaten, their stomachs were full and Jesus went back to Capernaum where they, many of them were the next day also. And if you read the other gospel accounts, it said they saw him coming and they came to him again and it kind of implies that they probably wanted something to eat, but he didn't, he didn't feed them that time. He didn't do it every time. They were really looking for a king. They were looking for a, someone who would who would overrule the Romans. And he wasn't that kind of king. He was a spiritual king. And he wasn't going to feed them constantly either. But the lesson of the feeding of the 5,000, some of them missed because actually it says that many people began to turn away from him after seeing all of this too. Where are you? After hearing the evidence of the gospel throughout the New Testament and Old Testament, and even in this particular one. Where are you? Have you heard the truth of Christ and seen him at work, but yet have questions and would turn away? They turned away. They turn away, which means that they would be eventually into eternal judgment because they had rejected the spiritual king that came for them. So uh, that's my message this morning. Let's pray. And after we pray, uh, if I can be of help to you, I'll be up here. I'll kind of be in the front. I think Chris will be in the front too and our other elders will be in the back and we have gifts for guests if they would like them and just kind of get to know each other a little bit. But if you have questions for any of our elders, please let us know. Let's pray. Please stand. And then I think Chris is going to come lead. Father, we do thank you for your grace today. What a wonderful day it is. It's a beautiful day of common grace coming upon us through the sunshine this morning and probably good food at home. May your blessing be on it and may your uh, direction be on it and may we understand this miracle is not just another miracle but this is a very, very important one of all the miracles Jesus did and of the two in the Gospels. Resurrection in the feeding of the 5,000. Bless it to our hearts that we may take it to heart and learn and apply and, and go beyond the simple surface things to the deeper parts of the meaning of this text, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.